Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. Today on the podcast we're starting with a very large number. We're starting with 100 billion. Now, let's say I gave you a spreadsheet with 100 billion rows in it. Each row consisted of five columns, latitude, longitude, device ID, a timestamp, and a column telling you the name of the data provider. What, what would you do with that? How would you clean it? How would you make sense of it, extract value from it? What do you think people would use it for? And, and how would you do all of this stuff in a way that could be systematized, in a way that you could repeat again tomorrow? So Foursquare does this every day with the help of something they call a movement engine. To help us understand more about how they do this, I've invited Gabriel Durkin, the Director of Data Science on the podcast. So this is the last in a series of episodes that I have been working on together with Foursquare. And I have to say, they have been absolutely brilliant to work with. If you're interested in hearing some of the previous episodes, I'll put links to them in the show notes of today's episode. But for right now, we're back to the 100 billion points. Hey Gabriel, welcome to the podcast. You are the Director of Data Science at Foursquare. You have something called a movement engine over there and you process 100 billion records, a GPS records, I should say, each and every day. At least that's what I got out of our pre-interview conversation. I'm hoping you can put a few more words around that in just a minute. But my guess is you haven't always been the director of data science at Foursquare. How did you get there? Where, where, where did you come from? How did you get involved in, in processing movement data? Well, it's nice to be here, first of all, Daniel. When it comes to how I got here, it's been a sort of a circuitous journey. I, for the first 20 years of my adult working life, I was a quantum physicist. I did my PhD at Oxford in quantum physics and then uh, moved to the States to work at the Jet Propulsion Lab and then at the NASA Ames Research Center. We had a quantum computing team there and I was part of it. So data science is a, was kind of a career change for me, you know, probably seven years ago now. And, you know, I, I worked at Uber and some other startups doing, you know, first as an independent contributor and then eventually moving into management. And that's some of the story about how I got here today, working at Foursquare on geospatial data, uh, leading the, the movement engine, which is uh, a name for the team, the, the people working on uh, movement data, but also a name for the platform that we built. That is a cool name for a team, the movement engine. Hey, um, to, if we just stay with your past just for a second here, what was it like going from quantum physics, I think you said, over to, to geospatial data? Was it a big jump? Like, was there anything that was difficult to learn? Was there a huge vocabulary shift? Or is it all just, you know, more data? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a, it was a choice I made just because I, I wanted to work, you know, more broadly in industry. You know, I enjoy research. I, I still consider myself a quantum physicist. But I wanted to, you know, work in a faster-paced environment. And, uh, you know, I'd been at NASA a long time, so I thought a change of pace might be interesting. And I knew that data science was a career that had a lot of transferable skills for people with, you know, PhDs in the so-called hard sciences, you know, numeracy, analytical skills. Also kind of, you know, I think the best data scientists are the ones that have that kind of scientific curiosity, um, willing to kind of turn over every rock. That's something that it's hard to just, uh, you know, learn in college. Uh, I think it's kind of either you have that instinct or you don't. So yeah, so I, you know, I cut my teeth on geospatial data at, at Uber and learned a lot there. It's, it's a completely different type of work. I mean, you, there's certainly the science aspect of it, but it's also working collaboratively with people with different backgrounds, you know, designers and product managers. Uh, so it's, uh, it's actually quite an enriching experience and I've, I've definitely enjoyed it. And it was, for me, it was the right career move. 
And it's, it's only something that's become possible. I mean, data science as a career has only really existed for, you know, just over 10 years, I guess. And so, you know, the, the career path to data science uh, these days is quite, is quite varied, but there was a program and uh, it's called the Insight Data Science. It's kind of a fellowship where they, in a very short space of time, kind of prep you for the world of work as a data scientist. And, uh, you know, for me, that program was invaluable. I think there's no way I would have passed any of the, you know, data science uh, interviews, which are really quite rigorous uh, for tech companies uh, it, without that experience. So I owe a lot of it to Insight Data Science. That is really interesting. Um, I naively just assume that you know, someone with your background Oh, great. I'm, I'm really good at math. So I un- understand all these, these complicated processes. I've worked with big chunks of data before. Yeah. Um, you know, just cha- change my name or change the title, sorry. And voila, now I'm a data scientist. That's interesting to, to hear you say that there was a prep course involved and that yeah. you're great and that you got a lot out of it as well, which is possibly even more interesting. I would say, yes. I mean, there's part of the narrative is like, especially people do well if they have a background, like let's say in astronomy, where they're good at dealing with large data sets, but, you know, it's really quite different. Um, there's always the fear that someone with a, you know, a, a nerd with a PhD is going to be good at burrowing into problems, but isn't actually very focused on execution or, or whether they, you know, whether you have a sense of urgency um, or whether your technical expertise is aligned with the business objectives of the company. So those are all things that you have to demonstrate to, you know, allay those fears that you're just some very technical nerd who you know, has minimal impact for the business. And that's always something that we, we struggle with, I think, as data scientists. So, uh, yeah, it's very important to kind of exercise those muscles, like the business acumen part of things. Um, also, just being able to talk to non-technical stakeholders about your work and, and why it has impact. You know, communication is key. Well, th- thank you very much for sharing that with us. I, I really appreciate it. Um, the promise of this podcast is like the, the focus on, on, on this movement engine and the, these 100 billion records that, that you process each day. Um, I, and I think we should maybe shift the conversation towards that. Mm-hmm. So, so, so let's start with these records. What is all that data and, and where is it coming from? 100 billion records. You know, think of a GPS record as it's a, like a, a row in a, in a data table uh, that is, you might call it a ping, right? It, it's a a latitude, a longitude, and a timestamp, and a device ID associated with it. So we at Foursquare, you know, have a differentiating component compared with other, maybe other, other big data companies in that we have our own owned and operated apps. And those owned and operated apps, you know, one of the famous ones is Swarm, which is our, our life logging app, or, or Foursquare City Guides. Those apps, you know, generate data for us as well, right? So we you know, the, the user of Swarm likes to be able to remember, you know, whether, how many times this week they went to the gym or, you know, what their sequence of movements was yesterday. But we also can leverage that data to, you know, improve our own, our own uh, data collection, our own algorithms that we build on top of the data. That's one component of the data. So we have those, those pings, those latitude, longitudes, and timestamps from our own, our own apps. We also collect the majority of the data from like third-party sources. Those sources could be, you know, apps themselves, or they might be, you know, from other data companies. And that contributes to the, you know, the hundred billion records that we ingest every day. Yeah, that's a lot of data. Um, so I guess that one of the big questions now is, well, what do you do with that? Is it all just ready-to-use, like analysis-ready data, or do you have to do something to it first? No, definitely not. Um, you know, there's gold in them hills 
but uh, it's not all golden, I would say. And the data is very raw, like it is just literally those raw records. And one of the things that my team is responsible for is is refining that raw data. Just like an oil refinery might, uh, you know, might be responsible for turning oil into different things like uh, petroleum-based products, like car gasoline or butane or whatever through fractional distillation. We're we're trying to distill value out of the out of the raw data itself. And this raw data it comes from multiple providers, multiple sources. Some of it's internal to Foursquare. Some of it is these third-party sources. And really, what we're doing with it is trying to imbue it with geospatial intelligence, right? Trying to extract value out of it. So, you know, you take the raw pings and, you know, the, the first kind of part of the process. It, well, what we're doing with it is really like building up more complex structures out of the, you know, just flat data that we're collecting. So, you know, you start with the completely unstructured raw data. And from that, you build those pings up into, well, first of all, you might try to classify if the pings are associated with a mobile phone or a device that is in motion or at rest. So you do classification on those pings at the device level, at the ping level. Then you might start structuring those pings into what we call segments. So it's this process of segmentation. So collections of pings might be seen as participating in a a moving segment for that device. Like if the person who owned the device is walking down the street or if they're traveling in a vehicle along the road, if the person has stopped, there may be a collection of those pings that is associated with the stop, right? Maybe there's a clustering around a particular, you know, commercial venue. That's that's definitely of interest, right? Um, so, you know, you go from pings to these to this segmentation to produce these segments, which may be stops or or moving segments. And there is uh, maybe like a majority vote, right? Like you're if you can put a lasso around a set of these pings, you know, maybe the majority of them are stop pings, but there's a few moving pings in there. You do a harmonization to say, well, you know, within this cluster, most of these pings are, are stop pings. So we identify the whole cluster as a stop cluster. Then you might build up, you know, now you have these segments, you can build up this timeline, uh, sort of more of a holistic understanding of the user's journey. But we might just be looking at one particular provider, right? We might be looking at one source of the data. It might be coming from our own app, or it might be coming from one of the external providers. So we build up a timeline from those segments for the device. And we do that per source. You know, we've gone through this process of building up structure, right? We've gone from pings to segments, and then from segments to timelines. And when you have a timeline per source, then the next process is, uh, you know, an additional one of harmonization kind of data fusion, right? We want to build a master timeline for that device, but we reconcile the different storylines that are being told for that, the user of that device, uh, you know, for a particular day. Um, So, you know, one provider might be saying, well, the person was in motion and then they, you know, they stopped somewhere uh, for 30 minutes before picking up again and going somewhere else. You know, that may not be completely aligned between the different providers from which we get the data. So we can do again, like a sort of a weighted majority vote, you know, for each each moment in time, we can decide how many of the providers are telling a movement story versus others that say, no, actually, that device was at rest. And we can even be more sophisticated than that. And it can be weighted by the value that we attach to each provider. Like some providers, the data is more likely to be higher quality, let's say, than, than others. Uh, sometimes the data can be synthetic that they provide. Sometimes it's it's very noisy. Sometimes it's been manipulated in some way. You know, like for instance, 
the data can be snapped to a grid. You know, when you have a particular ping at a location, sometimes the, the, the latitude and longitude get rounded up and uh, it basically causing the, the, the location of the ping to be snapped to somewhere on, on the grid. So uh, there's all sorts of you know, components to, to the quality of the, da- the input data. And then that gives us the ability to define kind of a quality score for, for the providers. And that can then go into the weighting of how much we value their perspective on what the device was doing when we build these storylines for, the, you know, for that user journey. Wow. Uh, I've got a, a bunch of questions and, and I hope that you'll, you'll bear with me for a minute here. Um, the, the first one being, if I only see a device once uh, across all the data sets, d- does it get a higher weighting or do you, do you treat that differently? And my guess is it's always nice to see a device multiple times. Like, ah, yeah, it, it definitely is a device. Many, like multiple providers see that data, that device in their data set. Yes, it's, that's right. That can contribute to the kind of uh, our ability to dis- to determine the veracity of the device, like is this a real device? That's one component of it. Another component of it is, of course, the ping could be real, and it might end up in our data set. You know, we, we do try to aggressively filter on quality and and veracity. Uh, we try to filter out some of that synthetic data for sure. But if a device is only seen once in a blue moon. It makes it much harder to uh, reconstruct this uh, sort of holistic understanding of their user journey throughout the day. And for some applications, that doesn't matter as much. But in general, we want to start by having the fullest understanding of what a device was doing throughout the day. So if we only have very patchy appearances of the device in the data, it becomes very hard to kind of impute you know, what's happening uh, in the gaps where we don't see the device. And we feel more confident about building high-quality data products when we can actually have the most you know, holistic understanding of, of the device's movements. So yes, that, that data will not be excluded, but maybe it'll be considered to be you know, low fidelity or, or will only be used for certain products and, and not others. That makes a lot of sense. Do you ever interpolate the, the gaps that you see in the data? Let's say you have this, I think you talked about journey, so you could say that you're segmenting the, these uh, pings into at rest movement and for a single device if the gap isn't too big do you ever interpolate that gap interpolate the 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 no data points yeah no it's good it's a really good question and on very small time scales yes we do like i mean one of the ways we form uh, like say a stop segment is if we establish that a cluster of pings is contributing to what we call a stop you know, when we, when we create the timeline for that stop, we, we create a dwell, a dwell time for the stop. And it's really just the kind of the maximum timestamp that's in that cluster, you know, subtracting off the minimum timestamp. So we're establishing that even though we only have a few pings contributing to it, we kind of fill in that segment in the timeline and say, like, during this block of time, that person was stopped. Maybe they were at a venue. The more difficult thing is kind of like between segments when there are gaps between segments. Because obviously, you know, in an ideal world, you would want to have uh, a stop segment followed by a movement segment followed by a stop segment, you know. And so we, when these things are being created, there is a kind of a process of coalescing. I mean, if you have two moving segments that are close together, we will coalesce them into one larger moving segment because it just makes sense. There should be this kind of flip-flopping between moving and stop, right? But there are times where, you know, for an extended period of hours, for whatever reason, Perhaps the person with the device was indoors uh, or their battery died or, you know, they got on a plane. Like there's lots of reasons why they disappear from our radar. 
and we don't try to do currently you know with the the way we process the data we don't try to uh, get too inventive with how we interpolate between those in those large gaps and the, the one exception to that is you know in the evening and at night like if you live in let's say you live in a concrete apartment building the chances of signal being able to reach a satellite in order to produce and record these pings is you know very attenuated so if we see that you stopped or that you entered a building that we de- that has been designated as your home in our modeling uh, and we don't see any pings for many hours you know and it's during the nighttime if you then reappear the next morning within a proximity of a few hundred meters or so of of where you disappeared off our radar and it was overnight then you know we will interpolate between those two points at which we did have data and say like you had an overnight stop at this place and it's even more likely to be the case if it's if it's some if it's a place that we've our modeling has designated that you live we'll call that an overnight stop even though we didn't have any data in that gap but other than that um you know there are companies out there that that are in the business of generating uh, synthetic data uh, to kind of mimic you know human uh, patterns of movement but uh, we we don't currently do that at Foursquare so we try to minimally interpolate when there are gaps uh, we, we let those gaps exist for the most part and are all these data streams are they being delivered to you in in real time and, and what i'm wondering here is that let, let's say you get a delivery update or you, your own systems your, your own apps pick up this uh, device id you can see it today and then a week later you get some more data from a third-party provider do you need to wait a certain amount of time to you know gather that data in and make sure that you can uh like identify those devices before you start processing data? Does that make sense? I mean, this is a, this is a really good question. Uh, you kind of hit the nail on the head with one of the issues. In consuming third-party data, there are always issues. Uh, there are issues around quality, but there are also issues around latency. Obviously, the data that we get from our own apps, we're able to process fairly quickly. There's very low latency there, and it's high quality because, you know, we, we own the data, you know, never leaves uh, you know the boundaries of our company's data so uh, the external data it's interesting if you consider a particular date of observation you know a, a date during which stuff was happening in the real world and we want to collect uh, as much of that third party data as possible it can take many days now we get deliveries daily from third parties but it can take many days for to fill in all the blanks about that day uh, of observations, uh, the, the date in which the pings were generated, like even five, six days later, it's worth waiting those extra few days to get more, uh, you know, to fill in the blanks and, and to get substantially more data about that particular day of observation. So the flip side of that is then if this data is going to be used for anything that requires a quick turnaround, like for instance, uh, you know, some of our data products uh, lead to attribution, right? If someone sees an, an ad for a quick serve restaurant, you know, on their mobile device, that ad impression may be registered with that device. And then, you know, much like digital, a little bit more challenging, I would say, than digital conversions where someone might see an ad for socks and then click on a, a website and go and uh, buy some socks like within 10 minutes of seeing the ad. It's a more of a challenge to connect the real world conversion of someone walking into a quick serve restaurant because you know they saw an ad for a hamburger on on online and it made them hungry but either way there's still this issue of the conversion window and we want to have like 
uh, feedback from the campaign, from the advertising campaign that produced the impression like as soon as possible. And depending on the needs of the client, that may be, you know, ideally within a few days. So we wait more time to collect more data so we can say, you know, so we can make more high fidelity, you know, observations about what the person did in the real world. But then the clients also want a fast turnaround. So, the, you know, typically there's some sort of sweet spot. It could be, you know, between, uh, between two or three and seven days, uh, depending on the client and their, their tolerance for a delay in waiting for that signal. This is a perfect segue onto like the, the, the next obvious question here, which is what is this data used for? And in a previous conversation, you, you've mentioned this idea of attribution and, and targeting. And I want to get into that in just a second. Uh, but first, I, I, I want to understand about movement and at rest, mm. because I, I think this will help people understand the, the, like, where the conversation is going to go from here. Which one of those two things is, is more important for you as a company? to know that the device is moving or at the device is at rest? Yes. So I see there's a good story behind this. So uh, when I came to the company, one of the things I was tasked with was, you know, building a team to upgrade these, you know, movement pipelines, use, you know, more cutting edge technology and more robust, uh, make these pipelines more robust. And, you know, we were looking at how things have been done previously. And there's a certain amount of ML and algorithmic work that went into it. And we wanted to move quickly and build something that was simple to understand and also easy, easy to maintain. So we started by building a baseline model for this movement segmentation piece that's not relying on kind of off-the-shelf algorithms or, you know, any sophisticated ML um, that would then require upkeep and, and uh, you know, ML ops practices. I think, you know, just in general, as a data scientist, we should always start by building a simple heuristic rule-based model. And, and you know, that can be our baseline, but it also demonstrates that the people who are tackling the problem understand the problem because they built rules that work. Uh, and it's also super easy to debug, whereas, you know, ML can be a bit of a black box phenomenon. So what one of the epiphanies we had was, you know, as you look at a device trail, as, as someone is walking down the street with their mobile phone in their pocket, it's easier to actually measure movement right and you sort of see this with your even when you're using like google maps like quite often it doesn't know which way you're facing when you start driving like it thinks you're going the wrong way down the street and then it quickly updates and, and flips you around on the map and so my point is that actually movement is easier to detect than stops and in some sense stops are like the absence of movement so actually indexing on movement was one of the key things that we were able to do to actually get much more accurate like understanding of this phenomenon. It sounds trivial, like I know very clearly if I'm moving or at rest, but you know, the mobile phone signals can, can suffer from you know, all sorts of jitter and issues with you know, uh, urban canyons, uh, you know, signals reflecting off buildings or walls. It's called multipath, I guess, uh, in, indoor underground use satellites being blocked and so on trees and it's actually non-trivial to, to try and solve that and so you could look at speed for instance but because of the jitter that's in the signal the kind of speed measurements are quite often not reliable when you're trying to do this segmentation so the takeaway was that we wanted to focus on movement instead of worrying about stops let's focus on movement because when you're moving down the street your trajectory takes a very definite shape so the idea was to focus on the shape of the trajectory rather than like things like speed 
um, because like an old lady shuffling down the street with her shopping bags is not moving very quickly and her signal may have a lot of jitter in it. But if you look at her kind of average trajectory, it's a very uncoiled shape. And so that's kind of the metric that we were using. It's the kind of a shape metric. I, I call it the spaghetti shape index uh, versus like when you're stopped, your ping trail tends to be kind of coiled up. Maybe because of jitter, it looks like you're moving fast, but your trail tends to be kind of coiled up like spaghetti on a fork. So then stops became like the absence of movement once we had that, that epiphany. And, uh, you know, what's interesting is, you know, yes, we focused on movement, but actually in terms of our business, stops provide more value, but it's kind of like yin and yang. So stops provide value because if you can define a, a device is at rest, if it's in the vicinity of some commercial venue, then you can say maybe that person who was stopped there went into that coffee shop nearby. So you've elevated the stop from being a stop to becoming a visit by doing this venue attachment. Once you have a visit, then there's all sorts of like commercial applications that, that open up. And you mentioned already there's attribution and targeting. You know, if someone goes into coffee shops regularly, we can assign them to a, you know, a, 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 an audience, a, a bucket of devices that you know, can be sold as the audience can be sold as an audience of coffee lovers, right? And so this, the, the attribution and targeting are like the opposite sides of the coin with digital advertising, right? First of all, you need to understand, you know, what type of person might be interested in an advertisement, right? A digital advertisement. And so you show someone a coffee ad and they're susceptible to drinking coffee, then that's, that's a good approach, right? The other side of it is attribution, right? When you show them the ad, do we know if that person responded and went to a coffee shop? And we have a team at the company that, uh, you know, looks at solving, making that connection and doing it in a, you know, sophisticated enough way to understand, like, would that person have gone to the coffee shop anyway, even if we had not shown them the ad? So there's like, there's ML in this in terms of like causal inference models to, you know, compare the actual behavior with the counterfactual, like the baseline, which is people tend to go to coffee shops anyway. Is there a lift in, you know, their visitation if they see an ad, right? So that's, that's a very valuable revenue generating activity for the company. like being able to connect uh, stops to venues to be able to assign visits. And then from the visit, you can match that back to an ad impression. And then that's what attribution is. So like our, our partners, the clients that are interested in our attribution product can understand if their campaigns, their advertising campaigns are successful or not. When you talk about it like that, it sounds like you're looking at stops and movement in, you know, as, as discrete objects. Okay, that this one stop was important to us. Again, like harking back to our previous conversation, you had this great phrase. Uh, let me see if I can pronounce it correctly. It was a semantically meaningful journey. And, and when you've said that, it made me think like, maybe this is more than just one discrete stop. Maybe this is, you know, trying to build up a picture of the journey itself. Like what was this device doing during the day? What, what does the pattern of the, the weekly, daily, monthly pattern of this device look like? It, am I on the right track or am I completely out of scope? No, no, it's, I think you're right. Uh, yes, there is definitely a contrast between the kind of uh, once and done uh, scenarios that I'm describing. Like, you know, it's much more generic to say someone tends to visit coffee shops or to say, oh, they saw this ad and then they went to the coffee shop, right? Or the quick serve restaurant. It is definitely like, I think, foundational to, as a data scientist, I want to be able to recreate 
a picture of reality. Like I want to be faithful to what's happening in the real world for the users of these devices. And, you know, that's kind of foundational to what we try to do. And it's not anything necessarily that we then, I want to make a distinction between that and then what is actually presented as a product, either internally or to external clients. Um, you know, there's lots of privacy concerns that we have front and center about, you know, the products that we deliver. But, you know, as a data scientist, it's my goal to have a full understanding because I don't want to make mistakes about how I infer what was happening with that person. If we have that full picture, you know, we can serve those obvious use cases of targeting and attribution. But there are other, you know, more sophisticated scenarios that you're alluding to with like, wouldn't it be great if we could understand the full uh, like longitudinal movements of a device throughout the day? And it also helps us understand the quality of our data. If we're, you know, if for a particular provider, we can't do that reconstruction in a very convincing way, it might suggest that that provider is not giving you very high quality data. But in terms of like how we derive on, uh, you know, that full longitudinal understanding, that uh, holistic understanding of the user journey throughout the day, one of the applications for this is that, uh, you know, we have a client who is interested in building synthetic models, synthetic twins of, you know, real uh, users in the real world. These digital synthetic twins, they populate uh, cities with these synthetic models. And, uh, you know, from these models that are, that are trained on the real data that we supply them. So this is a scenario where we do have to have high quality longitudinal stories about these, you know, these holistic stories about the user journey, because then the models they build will be a much higher quality. And these are the types of, uh, you know, synthetic models that are really, really useful to um, like city uh, transit authorities, uh, urban planners, as they kind of model the flow of human beings through the urban landscape. You know, it can really help with things like urban planning. You know, the good thing about that is it's, very privacy safe because you know none of none of the real user data gets exposed you know to the outside world it's merely used to train these these synthetic models that sounds fascinating you're talking about the like getting data in, in different chunks like earlier on in the conversation and you were relating this to, to attribution how is the how is our client going to know if the device saw that walked past the billboard and then went had a cup of coffee but, but that made me think of this idea wow you you could monitor like a disaster, for example, or you could look at a d disaster in retrospect and see how people responded to it, like leading up to it and afterward, maybe even during it and after it. Do you know of anyone doing work like that? <laughs> I mean, I can say the answer is yes. Uh, we have a government client that's very interested in modeling what happens in, not even modeling, but just actually observing what happens in the aftermath of, let's say, a hurricane um, you can imagine that satellite data can be rather patchy. You know, you may not have satellite imagery of what's happening. Um, so in terms of like even disaster relief and planning for, you know, future uh, disasters and response to those, this sort of data, you know, is and, and will be immensely valuable. So, you know, we do have uh, an interest from a client in that. And, I, you know, I probably can't say who it is, but that's, uh, that is definitely, you know, you've hit the nail on the head there too with that. So interesting, you you talked about satellite data. Um, for the for the last little while, people were talking about we can use satellite data and we can look at the car park at uh, Walmart and figure out how many cars in there and sort of 
long story short, figure out what the share price is going to be, essentially, whether it's going to go up and down. Uh, lots of people visiting Walmart. But my guess is you have pretty great data on that. Do you work with satellite companies to help them sort of augment the analysis that they're producing? Or, or could you? There are companies that, like you mentioned, will take that satellite data and try to infer, you know, as you say, if, if for a particular big box store, there are 20% fewer cars in the parking lots this quarter compared to the last quarter, you know, maybe earnings will be down, right? That has all sorts of, you know, potential issues in that uh, the data is really quite sparse. You know, there, until recently, I think, uh, you know, Planet Labs has these amazing doves that, that encircle the globe and maybe have a, you know, daily line scan image of the earth that gets updated daily. But apart from them, I mean, you're relying on, you know, uh, very low coverage of parking lots of big box stores, you know, from other satellites. And you're also, you know, at the mercy of the weather. And you're also at the mercy of the fact that parking lots can be underground, right? So definitely the people that are interested in our data products might be using those as well for the same purposes. But I would say that we're immune to some of those concerns like weather, for instance, right? We can actually determine what foot traffic was like to a particular high street store or a big box store in a way that is uh, much less sparse. So that's definitely uh, one of the applications of the, you know, us being able to generate visits from stops. Uh, that's, that's like a direct application of visits. These are kind of like business insights that you would, you know, derive from the visits. It's interesting. Like this really makes me think that, um, that whole argument, and, and I realized it was just an example that they could, you know, a tangible example that they could tell people about, oh, we could do this, you know. And, I, and my guess is this was an example that was sort of supposed to help people, to open people's eyes to the, the possibilities. But it really does make me think, like, there's probably a better way of doing this, and <laughs> maybe your data is a better way of doing this. Just going back to the, you know, this conversation about how we um, use the data to, like, provide insights about foot traffic to various chains and, and, and sort of business categories. There is that data, of course, coming in from third parties. But w one of the things we really focus on is, you know, coming back to this idea that we have our own owned and operated apps, we can look at, and this, this comes down to quality, right? And this is, this is one of the ways in which we, we filter aggressively for quality. Like, I, I just wanted to bring this up, like looking at the intersection of those devices that are in both uh, the data from our own apps and they, that appear in the third-party apps, we're able to, well, first of all, we build a machine learning model to determine like which providers are more trustworthy than others. In other words, I think of it this way, if our first-party apps are saying that at a particular point in time, a device that is in third-party and in first-party uh, data, if that device at that time was, let's say, in San Francisco where I am, and a third-party app says, oh, well, actually, that device is uh, 20 miles away or it's in San Jose, right? That's an example of a training label we can then apply to the third-party data. We can look at the, the composition of the stops and visits that we generate, and they're, they're composite. You know, some of the pings come from one provider, some of them come from another source. And so we can see, like, based on the composition, what's the likelihood that that, that stop is real or that visit is real? And then we can uh, build a model on top of that. So we can train on the devices that are in the intersection of our data and, and the third-party data. And then we can apply the, the, the model to predict on top of the third-party data. And that way, 
you know, we can do some very aggressive filtering for this, this idea of veracity. And that way, because as you say, there's a hundred billion pings coming in, we need to be very careful about, you know, how much of that we just directly ingest in a very naive fashion. So at the very top of the funnel, we can actually take that data and apply these models and start to really restrict it, like turn down the flow based on these like veracity predictions. And that way, then we get to something we can say more confidently about the, you know, how many people visited the mall that day or the big box store. Would it be fair to say that you can use your own first party data as a form of ground truth? Yeah, of course. That's right. Yeah. I see it as sort of a, a quality assurance chain that starts with, you know, we have this app that has such a great loyal user base, uh, you know, this form app. And these people are creating their own visits. Basically, they're doing it for themselves, but the, in a way, they're doing it for us too, right? We know then that, you know, when the phone says this person stopped somewhere, that the algorithm inside the phone that is part of our app is doing a good job because the person is verifying the human in the loop is creating that training label and saying, yes, I was at this venue. So we can calibrate our own models on our first party apps. And then the chain then goes to the third party data. So we use the first party data to validate the, you know, the third party data and, and do, do this veracity modeling. That's the way I look at it as a chain of, you know, quality assurance. I, I'm really, really pleased you, you shared that with me. It, it makes a lot of sense and it's interesting. So we've been talking about the, these, these different sort of use case uh, applications for, for the data. You've, you've done a great job of telling us about the data, where it comes from, how you process it, the way you check it, the, these checks and balances that are in place, the idea of segmenting it into stops and, and movement and why that's important. We talked a little bit about attribution and targeting that the flow during the city, through a city, this idea of a segmentically meaningful journey. Uh, I want you to describe one last example for us, if you would, please. And this is the idea of crowdsourced routing. Right. Yeah, so this is a work in progress. Uh, part of our research team is working on, if you think about it, and this is a good example, like earlier we were talking about how most of the value we bring through understanding the raw GPS data is in determining stops and then visits and then obviously that leads to attribution but now that we are doing a better job at segmenting you know the movement in terms of understanding uh, movement itself not just the stops you can imagine a very straightforward application is you know when you look at a map you might look at a hot spots uh, you know hot spots on the map you can aggregate uh, where people stop you know on some grid uh, you know at the foursquare we use the h3 grid system a hexagonal grid system. So you can just simply do a, you know, a binning, like how, how many stops have occurred in this, this particular location. And that'll tell you maybe some information about like where people enter a building, right? Because people stop near the entrance um, or they, they, you know, the density of stops is, is higher near the entrance of a building. So it, it gives you some meaningful understanding of places beyond just say polygons. So that's about stops, right? So what to think about movement. So instead of thinking about hot spots you could think about hot trails right like we we also like aggregate people's movement segments like again on a h3 grid it's a way to kind of force grain those trails those those moving segments it also guarantees a certain amount of privacy because you know we're talking about public roads and uh, we want to sort of snap people's moving segments to those roads and the ones that are more heavily trafficked uh, are the ones that then, you know, you might uh, designate as these hot trails. In some sense, that's crowdsourced routing, right? Like, you know, you, you learn in computer science about 
you know, pathfinding algorithms like the Dextra pathfinding, right, which tries to find the shortest, lowest cost uh, path between two spots. But there may be other reasons why, you know, on a map that people use uh, a different sequence of waypoints, uh, a different route through the map than, than maybe the shortest one. And so, you know, much as when, I don't know if you were a kid growing up, like I, I grew up in Ireland and in the country, there's always these kind of well-worn paths and you wonder like, were they made by people or by animals, like through the, through the, you know, the forests and the hills. This is an example like that, right? Where you're, you're, you're finding that kind of hot trail on the map and that, that could definitely have an application for sure. So we're just exploring that and seeing if we can actually produce that as a, as a product and, you know, working with sales folks to just see if uh, there is a market for it. That would be really interesting to see how that, that plays out. <laughs> you know what it reminds me of? Uh, you go to the restaurant and it says popular. Most people eat this thing here. And, and it gives you a sense of certainty. And I just imagine looking at my you know, navigation app thing there, fastest, uh, shortest, most eco-friendly and popular. <laughs> and I wonder which one people would choose because popular. Hmm. There, there's a certain amount of certainty that, that comes with that. Most people choose this one. That's right. That's right. And, you know, I, I, quite often routing apps will send you on a uh, route that uh, maybe doesn't penalize left turns, like maybe it's the shortest, like end to end, but, you know, there are more, maybe it's a more dangerous, less effortless way to go. Uh, so I think sometimes as, as you're implying, like the, maybe the, the kind of the lowest common denominator route is the one that is the most effortless. And maybe that's kind of what we should be optimizing for. Yeah, or, or maybe it's the most peaceful. Maybe it's the most beautiful. Maybe it's yeah. the whatever else. That's, like right. Most, That's right. Most most scenic. And I, my my guess is there'd be an interesting overlap, you know, between what the computer thinks is the best and what the the humans think is the best. I mean, so in the the city where I live, for example, there's lots of cycleways, cycleways everywhere, and you can they've made a huge effort to try and go. Please go on the cycleway, but people always cut corners if they can because. Well, that's great. The machine said I should go straight here, but you know what? The human in me just wants to turn around the corner there. And you can see these well-worn bike paths, you know, just on the side and these little sneaky routes that, that people take because that is clearly a great place for, for humans to go. If humans would like to move in that direction or in, in that way. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, it'd be great if, you know, that we could have like a data-informed approach to that too, right? I think that would be amazing. Yeah, yeah, and that, like this ties back into what you were saying earlier about you know city planning. If we know more, the more we know about the movement, how are the people living in the city actually moving through the city? And if we can model that and create a city, and you know, how would they like to move through here? Not how are we going to force them to move? It's probably a bit of you know give and take there, but I, th I think that would be interesting. Yes, for sure. And also, like I think there is a component of this that is going back to semantic segmentation i mean i think you know much as like you know when we do uh let's say video calls and uh, the the algorithm uh, on your video call knows the difference between you and the foreground and then it can blur out the background so it has that distinction of like foreground from background or like earth versus sky that type of segmentation that we can do in, in computer vision i think there's a another research direction in this which is uh, sort of semantic segmentation on maps um, you know, we have different ways of mapping. Um, some of it is uh, crowdsourced. You know, there are people out there annotating maps for OSM. You can also draw maps using satellite imagery, using the same sort of segment, uh, semantic segmentation. I think Microsoft has done that. But 
we could also be using the mobile phone signals and this understanding of like stops and motion, you know, vehicular motion versus pedestrian motion to be able to draw maps, maps without maps using the ping trails of humans, just, you know, aggregating over time to remove the noise, even the speed of, of which the, the people are moving would, would provide segmentation of like roads into, you know, fast moving roads versus slow moving roads, and also uncover anomalies between the usage of roads versus how the roads have been drawn uh, by these other sources. So there's, there's an, a possibility of en enrichment there too, I think. This is kind of fascinating. So we've been talking for a while now and coming up with all these ideas of stuff you can do. And right at the start of the conversation, you said our data looks like this. It's like uh, imagine a spreadsheet with a latitude, a longitude, a time, and an ID. Right. It's kind of amazing that from that we, we can see so much potential. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's the, that's the power of data science and data engineering. And I think geospatial data, you know, you asked me why I chose this career, but like, I think it's some of the most challenging out there in, in the domain of, uh, you know, data, data science, because so little of what we do makes sense unless you can really just look at it on a map. You know, Foursquare has Foursquare Studio, which is our visualization studio. And I think, you know, anytime we have any incoming data scientists, I always insist that they, you know, draw their maps uh, in they don't just look at the data in tables and in statistics and metrics, but they actually plot their maps in studio um, because you just don't really appreciate, you, you don't have the correct contextual awareness until you, you plot things on a map. And that's, you know, that's part of the nuance of geospatial. And I think that's always been part of what fascinates me about it. Yeah. So with that, I, I had a question I was going to ask you about, like, what are you going to do next? Or are you, you run out of things to do, but you, you kind of, I think you've alluded to it that you haven't run out of things to do, that there's a lot to do there. It's very challenging. Um, so I think I'll take this in a different direction for, for the last question. So the last question is, mm. do you think that spatial is special or is it just more data? Uh, well, I think it's related to what I've just been saying. Like trying to extract value from spatial data is, is definitely very challenging. I think in terms of the industry, it's still somewhat untapped, you know, Things like targeting and attribution are very, like, very much low-hanging fruit. And I think we owe it to ourselves to kind of unlock a lot of the other potential out there. And, you know, luckily the other potential comes to, you know, comes down to doing these more sophisticated things like understanding these, uh, you know, these user journeys throughout the urban landscape, building maps without maps. And figure, figuring out, you know, we do work for businesses. Uh, this is not just a research project. You know, it's all about, like, how can we generate revenue from that as well? Is this something people are interested in or is it just a, a paper that I'm going to present at a, at a conference? Yeah, yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think you, you mentioned that right at the start, data science, you, when you're talking about being a good data scientist, is can you see the bigger picture? Can you see how this is going to create value for our customers? And so that, that ties in nicely with, with what you just said there, at, at least in my mind. Uh, Gabriel, this has been awesome. Uh, I've really enjoyed talking with you cover a lot of ground and um, really, really enjoy the conversation. Yeah, me too. But people know that you work for Foursquare. Is there anywhere in particular you'd like to point them towards if they want to go and learn more? Uh, I think you mentioned, you mentioned Foursquare Studio. That would be a great, great place to, for people to check out. Anywhere else we can you know, share a link to or point people towards? Uh, yeah, we can link the website. The website is kind of a good springboard into all of the different, uh, you know, activities that are going on at Foursquare and the products we offer, uh, as well as things like opportunity to explore Studio, which I would really invite everybody to try. It's a, 
it's an amazing kind of, you know, like I said, geospatial data is nothing if you can't actually, if you can't draw a map and uh, studio is really drawing maps on steroids. So it actually makes it a very pleasurable experience. Like some of the maps I've created in studio, I want to just uh, frame and put on the wall. Like it's, it's almost art to be honest. Uh, yeah, Studio is amazing. Uh, we've actually published an episode or two uh, around Studio before, and I'll oh, link nice. those up in the show, show notes. Again, again, again. Gabriel, thank you very much for your time. It's been awesome. Cheers. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you very much for listening all the way to the end. It's, it's much appreciated. I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Gabriel Durkin, the Director of Data Science at Foursquare. As I mentioned in the introduction, this is the last in a series of podcast episodes I've produced together with Foursquare. They've been brilliant to work with. I hope that you enjoyed them. Um, If you haven't checked them out yet, I'll put links to them in the show notes of this episode today. So that's it for me. That's it for this week's episode. I hope that you'll join me again next week. And as always, if you want to reach out to me for whatever reason, you can find me. You can find Mapscaping on Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn or check out our blog over at mapscaping.com. There will also be contact details there. Okay, we'll talk again soon. Bye.